Welcome back everyone. This is actually the last class in our continence course and in this class we're going to discuss pathology, assessment, and management of fecal incontinence. So the first few slides are just going to be a quick review of some of the things that we covered in our discussion of GI tract anatomy and physiology. So one of the things we talked about were all the things that contribute to normal defecation and to fecal continence. You have to have normal GI tract function and peristalsis in order to deliver soft form stool to the rectum at regular intervals. Absolutely critical to have normal sensory awareness so you know when you have stool in the rectum and you know what you have. You need normal sphincter function to control the outlet, to keep the outlet closed until it's a socially appropriate time to go. You need adequate rectal capacity and compliance to provide you with temporary storage of stool until it's socially appropriate. You need normal abdominal muscle strength and contractility because we use our abdominal muscles to create increased pressure and to initiate stool elimination. And finally, we have to think about environmental and psychosocial factors because there's a lot of taboos and sensitivities around stool elimination. So we'll talk about each of those in just a little bit more detail. So when you think about the role of peristalsis and colonic transit time, just as a quick review, Normally, transit through the small bowel is very quick, two to six hours. So things move through very quickly. It's like being on a conveyor belt with the conveyor belt turned up too high. Once you get to the colon, peristalsis slows down. So in the right side of the colon, remember, peristalsis is slow but continuous, gradually sweeping stool toward the transverse colon where it is temporarily stored. Then, on the left side of the colon, peristalsis occurs in sudden bursts called mass movements or propagating contractions. So what happens is once you get enough stool pushed into the transverse colon to distend the colon walls, you activate peristaltic waves that rapidly move stool down to the rectum very quickly. We talked about this when we talked about defecation before. Now normally, that pattern of peristalsis assures that liquid is pulled out of the stool and that you end up with soft form stool, optimal size right at two centimeters. Now what's that about? Well, if you have stool that's about two centimeters in diameter, a little bit less than an inch, it's easy to retain, so it makes it easier for the anal sphincter to maintain continence because it's not going to pass easily through the anal canal unless you're bearing down. But it's also relatively easy to eliminate. Normal function produces soft form stool of about two centimeters diameter. So we just said that in the left colon, you get these mass movements that trans stool from the transverse colon to the rectum in as little as 10 minutes. And we talked about the fact that we've all experienced this when, you know, we're running around, we grab something to eat, we grab a cup of coffee, we hop into our car, and then about 10 minutes down the road, all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, 
I've got to go to the bathroom and I'm not in any place to go. That speaks to peristaltic stimulants. Activity is a stimulant. Colonic distension is a stimulant. Eating is a powerful stimulant. Caffeine is a powerful stimulant. So when we get up in the morning and we're running around and then we eat something and then we drink coffee or tea, those are three major stimulants. And it explains why stool elimination is most common after breakfast. Now many of our patients have peristaltic, peristaltic inhibitors. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about constipation. So what are the things that slow the gut down and interfere with delivery of soft-formed stool to the rectum? Certainly inactivity. When you're a couch potato, remember, your gut follows your lead and it becomes very inactive. Low-fiber diet. There's nothing to stretch the colonic wall and to trigger peristaltic activity. Medications, especially opioids and anticholinergics. And aging. So elderly individuals are automatically at risk because there's some reduction in peristaltic activity with age. Then if you add inactivity, if you add a low fiber diet, if you add anticholinergic medications, they become very high risk. A quick review of innervation affecting peristalsis. The primary innervation for peristaltic activity is the enteric nervous system. Those are the receptors and the pathways located within the bowel wall. Those receptors respond to stretch and to irritants. The autonomic nervous system acts to modulate peristaltic activity. And the autonomic nerve fibers, you remember, come through the mesentery and intersect with the major uh, nerve receptors in the colon wall. Sympathetic stimulation slows the gut, so we see a lot of sympathetic stimulation under stress. We see sympathetic stimulation following surgery, following anesthesia. Parasympathetic stimulation increases activity, increases peristalsis. <clears throat> the next thing we need is sensory awareness. So the first thing we want is we want the GI tract to work normally so that we get soft form stool delivered to the rectum at regular intervals. Okay, now we need an intact sensory system so that we know immediately when stool is delivered to the rectum and we know exactly what we've got on board. This is not something that you want to find out about after the fact. As soon as you get delivery of stool to the rectum, you want an alert to your brain so that you can engage the sphincter mechanism. So critically important to continence. Two components to sensory awareness. So the first is awareness that there's something in your rectum. And this is mediated through stretch receptors in the rectal wall and in the perirectal muscles. Normally they're very sensitive and they're activated by even low level distension as little as 10 to 20 milliliters. So you know when you have gas in your rectum and you know to tighten up until you're in a place where it's safe to release that gas, right? Small amounts will activate these stretch receptors and send a message to the cortex. The second component of sensory awareness is knowing what you've got. 
And we don't even think about that very often, but think how important it is. So first you get this message that you've got to go, and then in just a few seconds, you get a follow-up message that says, it's only gas, find a corner, or it's liquid, you better hurry, or it's a mixed bag, fart at your own risk. How do you get that information? How is that processed and mediated and signaled? Well, you have um, this area of the anal canal that is lined with receptors that have nothing to do in life but to sample rectal contents and give you an accurate readout. It's gas, it's liquid, it's solid, it's a mixture. And this is usually known as the anoderm. And usually it is incredibly accurate. So if it says you've got gas, you've got gas. If it says it's liquid, that's what you've got. Now, occasionally, if you've had some kind of gastroenteritis, those receptors can become inflamed and they might give you the wrong message. They might say it's only gas, ha ha, and it wasn't just gas. So one of my friends called me once and said, okay, I can only ask you this, but I had this GI bug and I had diarrhea and then I got over it, but now sometimes I think I'm just gonna fart, but no, there's something that comes with it. I'm like you, at this moment in time, cannot trust your anoderm. So if you sense anything, you've got to go to the bathroom until you start getting appropriate messages, which means the anoderm has recovered. What about innervation? So sensory awareness is mediated by pathways that enter and exit the cord at S2 to S4. So again, if you have a cord injured patient, if you have a spina bifida patient, if you have an MS patient with spinal cord lesions, they will not know when they have stool in their rectum. They also will not have normal sphincter function. So let's talk about the sphincters. So the sphincters are the gateways controlling the anal canal. As you know, you have two sphincters, the internal anal sphincter and the external anal sphincter. And you can see this very well illustrated in the slide on top. So the area in purple is the internal anal sphincter. It surrounds the anal canal and the anal rectal junction. It's actually a condensation of the circular muscle fibers um, that surround the rectum. It is a visceral muscle, meaning that you do not have voluntary control is controlled by the enteric nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. What does it do? Normally, the internal sphincter is closed. It provides you excellent protection, excellent continence at rest when you're not even thinking about your rectum, which hopefully is most of the time. What makes it open? It opens in response to rectal distension. You're thinking now, wait a minute, that seems backwards. It seems like it should be tighter during periods of rectal distension. Well, the internal sphincter acts like other sphincters in the GI tract, so let's just think about that. So when you look at the esophagogastric sphincter, it keeps the junction between the stomach and the esophagus closed until you swallow. And then it opens to allow food to pass in the stomach and then it closes again to prevent reflux. You've got your pyloric sphincter. It opens to allow food to pass from the stomach into the small bowel, and then it closes. 
the ileocecal valve opens to allow intestinal contents to pass from the small bowel into the colon and then it closes. So it controls forward flow and that's what the internal sphincter does. Stays closed at rest, opens in response to, to rectal distension to allow stool to pass into the anal canal. This is very important because it permits that sampling reflux. So when stool passes into the anal canal, it's exposed to all of those receptors in the anoderm. You get the information as to whether or not you've got liquid, gas, or solid. The response of the internal sphincter to rectal distension is sometimes referred to as the RAIR, rectoanal inhibitory reflex. What does that mean? It just means that when the rectum distends, there's temporary inhibition of the internal sphincter and it opens. That's what I want you to know. Internal sphincter is closed at rest, opens in response to rectal distension. Now, important to realize that if you have a patient with a spinal cord injury or with spina bifida or MS affecting the cord, you lose that reflex relaxation. And these are patients who end up with profound constipation. Stool enters the rectum, rectum distends, internal sphincter remains closed. A powerful inhibitor to normal stool elimination. Now this is important. Um, you can get either transient relaxation of the internal sphincter or you can get persistent relaxation. Low volumes cause transient relaxation. So a little bit of stool moves into the rectum, a little bit of gas moves into the rectum. You get transient relaxation. Rectal contents come in contact with the anoderm. You get a message as to what you've got and then the internal sphincter closes. But if you have significant volumes in the rectum, you get persistent relaxation of the internal sphincter. So if you have a large volume of liquid stool delivered to the rectum because you have diarrhea, then the sphincter opens and stays open and it helps to explain why you have very little response time. That internal sphincter is open and stool is passing into the anal canal and you have to get to a toilet quickly. So anytime you have a lot of volume in the rectum, you have persistent relaxation of the internal sphincter, you're at pretty high risk for leakage and it's all about your response time. Now, one other thing to mention here, when, we, when you hear the term hemorrhoidal or hemorrhoidal, we typically think of problems. We think of problems with hemorrhoids. We think of them being um, swollen and engorged, painful. But actually, normally, the hemorrhoidal veins play an important role in maintaining anal canal closure. So especially if you look at the um, bottom slides, you can see very clearly those little blue patches on either side of the anal canal. Those are the hemorrhoidal veins. They provide an additional compressive effect that actually augments sphincter function and helps to provide airtight closure of the anal canal. So they play an important role. Yes, they can be problematic um, if they're diseased, but in normal function, they're very important in terms of continence. 
What about the external sphincter? The external sphincter, as you see on top, look at the red that surrounds the purple. So the external sphincter actually surrounds the internal sphincter and the anal canal. It is a very complex, very accomplished muscle in that it has both reflex and voluntary activity. <clears throat> so you know that the external sphincter is partially contracted at rest. Think about all the digital exams you've done in your life as a nurse. And when you approach a sphincter, you expect to see it closed, right? That's reflex activity, maintaining closure of the external sphincter. Whenever the rectal walls distend, there's an increase in that reflex activity that helps maintain anal canal closure. As soon as you get notification that there's something in your rectum and you voluntarily contract, you get a doubling of anal canal resistance that obviously is essential to continence. You have to be able to voluntarily relax that muscle in order to push stool through the rectum and through the anal canal. When we talked about defecation disorders and we talked about obstructed defecation, we talked about what happens when you're not able to relax that sphincter muscle. You can't push stool through the anal canal effectively because it's closed. So you need to be able to contract and you need to be able to relax. Now the last thing about the external sphincter, and you can see it really well in the slide on the bottom. The external sphincter muscle is continuous with the puborectalis muscle, what part of that pelvic muscle, um, pelvic floor muscle group. And you can see that the puborectalis loops around the anorectal junction, and when the pelvic floor muscles are contracted, it maintain, helps to maintain anal canal closure by maintaining an angle between the rectum and the anal canal. That makes it hard for stool to move into the anal canal, promotes stool retention within the rectum. So you, you see that acute anorectal angle. Now, when you relax the pelvic floor muscles, relax the external sphincter, it straightens that angle, allows stool to move from the rectum into the anal canal, and supports defecation. And we'll come back to the fact, we've mentioned it previously, but we'll come back to the fact that squatting helps to straighten that angle. Sitting doesn't do it nearly as well. So in cultures where they squat to defecate, they have fewer problems. Our Western style toilets, not very helpful when it comes to stool elimination. Now, the voluntary components of the external sphincter are going to be innervated by the pudendal nerve that exits the cord at S2 to S4, very important nerve. Um, the reflex components are innervated by the enteric nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. Okay, so what have we said so far? You need normal GI tract function, normal peristalsis, so that you end up with soft-form stool being delivered to the rectum at regular intervals. You need normal sensory function so that you know immediately when anything is delivered to your rectum and you know what it is, gas, liquid, stool, or a mixed bag. You need normal sphincter function so that you can keep the anal canal closed until it's convenient to defecate. 
and the sphincter mechanism includes both the internal sphincter, that's the inside muscle, which maintains closure at rest, and then you need the external sphincter, which provides you with voluntary contractility, voluntary relaxation, and tremendously augments the function of the internal sphincter. Okay, so let's say all of those things are working. Let's say you've got soft form stool delivered to your rectum. You know immediately when stool is delivered to your rectum, you know what you've got, and your sphincters are working normally. So let's say I'm on the highway, and all of a sudden I get mass movements delivering stool to my rectum. And I get that transient relaxation of the internal sphincter that tells me it's the real thing. Then the sphincter tightens up. I tighten up on the external sphincter, so momentarily I'm keeping the anal canal closed, I'm keeping stool in the rectum. But that peristaltic wave is trying to push stool out. I'm trying to hold it in. I'm on the highway. Now I want you to think, you've got your external sphincter contracted. How long can you maintain maximal contraction of that external sphincter? It's a small muscle. So maximum contraction typically can be held for only one to two minutes. Does that give you enough time to get off the highway, find a suitable place with an acceptable restroom facility, get in there and assume the position? No, it doesn't. So how are you going to maintain continence? Well, here's what normally happens. I've got the anal canal closed because I'm voluntarily contracting the external sphincter. When you voluntarily contract the external sphincter, you interrupt that peristaltic wave, that downward push. It's like when a wave hits the beach and then recedes. So this peristaltic wave hits that closed anal canal and typically recedes you get relaxation. Once you in interrupt that peristaltic wave, you get relaxation of the rectal wall. If your rectum has normal capacity and normal compliance, your rectum can provide temporary storage of that stool until you get to a place where it's convenient to go. So rectal capacity and compliance by definition is the ability of the rectal walls to relax around a bolus of stool and to store the stool at low pressures for a period of time. Critical because, as we said, fecal leakage is going to occur anytime rectal pressures exceed anal canal pressures and you can maintain maximum contraction of the external sphincter for typically one to two minutes. Continence beyond that point is dependent upon interruption of those mass movements and relaxation of the rectal wall. Normal function, external anal sphincter contraction significantly increases anal canal pressure. That prevents stool elimination, prevents rectal emptying. It also interrupts those mass movements. The rectal walls then relax and you've got temporary storage. Then voluntary defecation requires you to voluntarily relax the external sphincter to use abdominal muscle contraction to start moving stool out of the rectum and through the anal canal.
So abdominal muscles matter. A few weeks ago, I was working with a woman, very accomplished woman, author, leader, teacher. She's wheelchair bound. And her spinal cord injury level is pretty high. It was about T4 to T6, so a pretty high injury. And I was talking to her about how she managed bowel function. She actually had a diversion for management of her bladder, but I'm like, how do you manage your bowel? And she's like, I have to work at managing my bowel. I have to make sure I get in enough fiber and fluid. I have to maintain a pretty strict bowel program so that I take a stimulant agent the night before and then I use a suppository or an enema in the morning when I want to go. And she said, it's harder for me because I no longer have any abdominal muscle function. She said, when I first got injured, I had, my injury was lower and I had good abdominal muscle function and so I could push stool out. And then I had some subsequent damage and now I have a much higher injury and now I can't use my abdominal muscles. And I've, now I have to use a lot more stimulants to get my bowel to empty. We don't think about it, but abdominal muscle contraction makes a huge difference. It allows us to increase abdominal pressure, which then increases rectal pressure, overrides anal canal pressure, and allows us to eliminate stool. What about those environmental and so psychosocial factors? Well, we grow up in a society where there are a lot of taboos around stool elimination. People in our society in general are much more open in talking about sexuality and sexual issues, even sexual dysfunction. They're more open in talking about issues with bladder control than we are in talking about issues with bowel control. So for most patients who have any issues with bowel control, it's tremendously humiliating. They do absolutely everything they can to keep it a secret, to manage behind closed doors. That reflects the society in which they grew up, and we know that there are many, many taboos around stool elimination. So some of the things that make a difference, first of all, how available and accessible are toileting facilities. So in most settings, people have pretty ready access to toilet facilities. But if someone's living in a home where there's one bathroom and multiple people, they may have limited access. And that can cause issues. That can cause issues with chronic constipation. Also, there are many people who can only eliminate stool in certain settings. So somebody was telling me about a friend of hers, she went to school with her and she said she couldn't go to the bathroom, she couldn't have a bowel movement if there was anyone around. And not just immediately around, but in the general vicinity. So she always went at night and she went to another building, to a classroom building that was open at night where she had access to the bathrooms. She wouldn't use the bathrooms in the dorm. And you think, wow, that's, that's silly, but it has to do with the way she grew up. And a lot of people will tell you they never go in a public restroom, that they always wait till they get home. 
You can see how that can contribute to constipation because they're constantly withholding stool. But you can also see how that happens because even though nobody says it out loud, we kind of grow up thinking, oh, it's better to have bowel movements at home, not in a public restroom, that if you have to go in a public restroom, that's probably okay as long as you don't make noise and don't create any odor, and that's pretty darn hard to do. So a lot of taboos, and as a result, a lot of people get into involuntary withholding of stool that contributes to constipation and can contribute to fecal leakage. So come back to what is involuntary defecation and when does it occur? Well, obviously involuntary is when I'm not in control, is when I'm trying to hold on to stool but I can't. You will get involuntary leakage anytime rectal pressures exceed anal canal pressures. So what if you have a lot of retained stool in the rectum? What if you have impacted stool? That's gonna cause constant relaxation of the internal sphincter because large volumes in the rectum cause the internal sphincter to relax and stay relaxed. That's gonna allow leakage of stool around that bolus of stool and this person is going to experience incontinence. So what are the risk factors for fecal incontinence? Well, diarrhea is a major risk factor. You can probably all remember sometime when you spent the night in the bathroom because you had really severe diarrhea and it wasn't safe to go anywhere else. You had to be there because when stool got dumped into your rectum, you had to be able to hop onto the toilet. We just said if you have impacted stool in the rectum, liquid stool proximal to the impaction can leak around the impacted stool and cause incontinence. Definitely neurologic disorders. It's just like the bladder. Neurologic control is critical to continence. So if I have a patient with a spinal cord injury, they don't know when they have stool in their rectum and they can't control the sphincter muscles, they are going to be incontinent. Same thing with dementia. Patient with dementia gets messages from the rectum but can't process them appropriately. And so they are going to have incontinent bowel movements whenever rectal pressures exceed anal canal pressures. Patients who have had anal rectal trauma, they've had impalement injuries, or they've had anal rectal surgery, if that anal rectal surgery results in damage to the sphincter or in some kind of denervation injury, they're very high risk for fecal incontinence. Same thing with women who have had very traumatic vaginal deliveries. So you know if you have a very traumatic vaginal delivery, you can get a rectal tear. And if you get a tear at the level of the anal rectum, at the level of the sphincter, then that torn area is gonna heal with scar tissue. Scar tissue is not contractile. So you're gonna have a section of the sphincter muscle that loses contractility. And this is a woman who's likely to be continent almost always, but if she has episodes of diarrhea, she may have episodes of leakage because she has a damaged sphincter muscle. Obviously, restricted mobility. If I can't get to the toilet, yes, eventually I'm going to be incontinent. And what about our patients with inflammatory bowel disease or severe IBSD, where they have 
either a motility disorder that dumps large amounts of stool into the rectum, or they have an inflammatory process that results in chronic diarrhea and an inflammation of the rectal wall so that the rectum is unable to stretch and store. They're going to tell you, I know when I have to go, but I have very little response time. If I can't get to the bathroom within this time frame, I am going to have an accident. So let's break it down into specific etiologic factors for fecal incontinence. And the way we're going to do this, we're going to tie specific etiologic factors to the major factors that contribute to continence. And we're going to treat management the same way. So any alteration in peristaltic activity, normal peristalsis delivers soft-formed stool to the rectum at regular intervals. What if I have excessive peristalsis? What if I end up with high-volume diarrhea? Well, it's going to cause rapid, severe rectal distension that can easily override the sphincter. What if I have severe constipation and I end up with impacted stool in the rectum? that causes persistent relaxation of the internal sphincter, stool can leak around. So abnormalities and peristaltic function as a category act as a risk factor for incontinence. What about any compromise in sensory awareness? If I do not know that there's stool in, there, in my rectum, I do not know to tighten the external sphincter I fail to do so, rectal pressures override anal canal pressures, I leak stool. So I have to have normal sensory function. If I do not, I do not respond and I will always leak. So what are the things that cause compromised sensory awareness? Usually it's a neurologic lesion, again, our cord injured patients, our spina bifida patients, some of our MS patients. What about dementia? But also, some women have a degree of pudendal neuropathy, pudendal nerve damage, that compromises their ability to recognize rectal distension and may contribute to fecal incontinence. Third thing, anything that interferes with sphincter function. The sphincter is your lock. It's what keeps the anal canal closed. So if you have compromised sphincter function, you can't close the anal canal, you can't retain stool within the rectum. If it's the internal sphincter, if the internal sphincter is damaged but the external sphincter remains tight, you're probably going to have seepage and soiling incidents. If you have damage to the external sphincter, you can have high volume incontinence. If you have reduced rectal capacity and compliance because of an inflammatory condition like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, if you have rectal wall fibrosis such as can occur with long-standing inflammation or following radiation to the pelvis, then you end up with a small capacity rectum that's very inflamed that cannot stretch and store for any length of time. So those are the people who know when they have to go. They can delay, but only briefly. So they'll tell you, I have practically no response time. This is how much I have. And then there's a separate type of incontinence in children that's due to subconscious withholding of stool. 
It's called Oncopresis, and we'll talk about it separately. So let's talk about assessment of the individual with fecal incontinence. So they come in, they say, I'm, maybe they say I'm having problems with diarrhea, but when you ask them further, it's really problems with bowel control. Or maybe they come in and they say, I'm having major problems with bowel control, it's ruining my life. I can't work, I can't go to school, I can't go out, I can't do anything. I'm literally a prisoner in my own home. Can you do anything to help me? So you're gonna start out, you're gonna do a history and a bowel chart. And specifically, you're gonna be asking questions that tells you about peristaltic function, that tells you about this patient's sensory awareness, their ability to close the anal canal, what does their sphincter do, and how stretchy is their rectum. When you do your physical, it's all about assessing sphincter function. What do I specifically ask? How long have you been having this problem? Can you link the onset to anything else, to the onset to your diagnosis of MS, to lower back surgery, to a flare-up of your ulcerative colitis? What does it link to, if anything? How bad is it? How often do you have these episodes? And more specifically, when you leak, do you leak solid stool? Do you just leak liquid stool? Is it usually just gas? How bad is the leakage? What impact has it had? How have you changed your life? And it breaks your heart what you will hear because people literally isolate themselves because it is so humiliating to have a fecal accident. You will hear people say, and I have had a friend who told me every one of these things. She's like, I take constipating medications throughout the week so that I can go to work. On the weekend, I have to do a clean out. It makes me sick, I'm nauseous, typically I'm vomiting, I'm having terrible cramping. My weekend is nothing about, is not about anything fun. My weekend is about cleaning out my bowel so that on Sunday night, I can start again to take my constipating meds so I can go to work. You'll hear people who severely restrict what they eat. They will tell you, I go out with my family if we're going out to celebrate, but they're eating, I'm not. It's not safe for me to eat. I wanna be with them, but I can't be there eating. So you wanna, you wanna hear from them. You're usually the only person they've really talked to, and it's incredibly helpful just be able to talk to someone. So don't just ask them about the problem, ask them how it's impacting them. Ask them if they can tell what makes it better and what makes it worse. Are there foods that make it better and foods that make it worse? Are there medications that make it better or worse? What have you learned in dealing with this problem that you and I can use together to help solve it? How have you managed in the past? How are you managing now? And what are your goals? And for most people, their goal is control. Whatever they have to do to establish control, they will do because fecal continence is essential to any kind of social interaction and any quality of life. 
you're going to do a quick review of systems. You're obviously going to start with the GI system. So have you ever been diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease? Has anybody ever told you you have irritable bowel syndrome? Or do you have symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome where you have cramping and diarrhea and then maybe things get better for a while and then you have another flare-up and during flare-ups that's when you typically have problems with leakage. Have you had any anorectal trauma or surgery? Do you have any neurohistory? Spinal cord injury, MS, low back injury, traumatic brain injury, Parkinson's stroke? Among women, vaginal deliveries, obstetric trauma. Did you have a sphincter tear? How was it managed? Did you have a surgical um, correction? And of course, if there's any hint of cognitive impairment or depression, you're gonna use an established screening tool. You wanna know about medications and you're gonna focus on medications that affect GI tract function. Some of them are obvious, like laxatives or stool softeners. But it is amazing how many people are taking stool softeners and they don't even realize it. Or maybe they're taking a mild laxative or a medication that has laxative effects and they don't realize it. So screen their meds. Um, some are not so obvious, like antacids. But antacids tend to either be magnesium-based, and those can cause diarrhea, or calcium aluminum base, which cause constipation. Look at the anticholinergics, they're gonna to contribute to constipation. Look at their cardiovascular meds. Diuretics can cause a level of dehydration and can cause drier stool. Oral hypoglycemics can cause diarrhea. Alzheimer's medications can cause diarrhea because of their impact on the autonomic nervous system. And finally, look at their dietary and fluid intake patterns. So get them to walk you through what they typically eat for breakfast, what they eat for lunch, what they look, eat for dinner, what kinds of fluids they drink, what kind of sweeteners they use. These are the most important questions. So if I don't have time to go through a full history, I will at least ask these questions. I want to ask questions that tell me a lot about peristaltic activity. So I want to say, how often do you have bowel movements? What's the usual consistency of your stool? Are you taking any medications for pain that could be slowing your bowel down? Are you taking any medications for bladder function that could be slowing your bowel down? Are you taking softeners or stimulants? I want to ask questions that tell me about sensory awareness. Do you always know when you have stool or gas in your rectum? Can you accurately differentiate between, between liquid, gas, and solid? What about sphincter function? So the critical question is, if you know you have stool in your rectum, can you hold it there at least briefly? Now, if you have good sphincter function but poor rectal capacity, you'll be able to delay defecation typically one to two minutes. If you have no sphincter function or minimal sphincter function, you'll have essentially no ability to delay. So you ask them, can you hold it? How long can you hold it? 
And if they say, yeah, I can hold it, but I have maybe one to two minutes, that speaks to issues with rectal capacity and compliance. Then you're gonna do your physical assessment. You've heard this before. You're going to inspect and percuss and palpate the abdomen and you're particularly looking for evidence of colonic distension. So if I have dull notes to percussion all the way around the colon, that suggests that I have a colon full of stool and that the first thing I need to do is a clean out. But if I percuss along the length of the colon and it's primarily um, tympanic, that's normal. So then I know that constipation is not contributing to this problem. I'm gonna do a digital exam to check for sphincter function. I want to assess anal tone at rest. So when I put my finger in, what should I feel? I should feel resistance. Normally the anal canal is closed and resist your finger. So you should feel resistance at baseline. When you ask them to tighten around your finger, you should feel circumferential contraction and kind of a pulling effect. If you're worried about a neurologic process, you can check the anal wink. It just gives you some information as to whether or not there are intact pathways between the spinal cord and the perineum. We don't routinely do that. When I'm doing my sphincter exam, my anal rectal exam, and I've asked them to tighten around my finger, I'm particularly alert to determine are there any gaps, are there any areas where I don't feel that strong circumferential contraction. That speaks to sphincter trauma, sphincter damage. I wanna know how strongly they can contract and how long they can hold it because remember, contraction of the external sphincter doubles anal canal resistance the longer you can maintain closure, the more response time you have, the more effectively you contract, the more effectively you interrupt that downward push, that peristaltic wave. Can they perform a Valsalva and relax the external sphincter on command? Because that tells you I can tighten and hold, but I can open to empty. Is there any retained stool in the rectum? and among women, any evidence of rectal prolapse when they bear down. Very helpful for them to keep a bowel chart so that I can see and they can see. Oh, you know, as long as my stool is soft and formed, I'm not having problems. It's really only when I have episodes of diarrhea. Okay, well that tells us a lot. It guides our intervention. If you have a patient who reports episodes of diarrhea associated with fecal incontinence, not only do you want a bowel chart, you want them to record food and fluid intake. So in that case, you ask them to keep a chart where they document everything they eat and drink, and they document when they have normal bowel movements and when they have any leakage. And then you can start to see which foods and fluids might be linked to episodes of diarrhea and leakage. Now that's routine assessment for any, any individual who comes in with fecal incontinence, a careful history, a focused physical, a review of their medications, a review of a bowel chart. 
these additional studies are just done in selected situations, but I wanted to mention them to you. Um, endoanal ultrasound or a sphincter MRI, a pelvic MRI, can be used to map the sphincter muscle so that you can see, oh, is that muscle normal or are there defects? Are there areas where the sphincter muscle has been replaced with collagen? So if you look on the top, that's an endoanal ultrasound, and you can see that between 12 and 2, you've obviously had disruption of the sphincter muscle, and a lot of the muscle has been filled in with collagen. So you know that the major thing contributing to this individual's incontinence is sphincter damage, that we either have to compensate with pelvic muscle exercises, the patient might need surgical intervention, and we definitely need to keep the stool soft to formed because a damaged sphincter is always more competent for formed stool. So that's a great way to pick up on structural damage. Now, anal rectal manometry is a test that's used to assess function and sensory awareness. So it really tells you, do you have normal sensory awareness and do your sphincters work correctly? So you take a catheter, it has three pressure sensitive balloons. So as you can see in the slide on the bottom, the top balloon sits in the rectal vault. The second balloon sits right at the anorectal junction to pick up on internal sphincter function. And the distal balloon sits at the, either throughout the anal canal or right at the anus to pick up on external sphincter function. What should happen? Well, when you inflate the intrarectal balloon, now you've created rectal distension, so you would expect to see the internal sphincter relax and the external sphincter contract. You can always do a sphincter EMG to measure um, sphincter function, and we've already talked about using defecography to assess problems with stool elimination. So now let's put it all together and see what we can do to help our patient. You've asked the critical questions, you've done the essential physical exam, and now you should be able to determine, does this patient have incontinence that, tra that is transient or is it chronic? If it's transient, then you're gonna focus on the causative factors because once you fix those, everything's gonna go back to normal. Is the stool consistency normal? Or do they bounce back and forth between constipation and diarrhea? And are a lot of their leakage episodes associated with diarrhea? Then I'm going to focus on stool consistency. Does the patient have normal sensory function? When I say, do you always know when you have something in your rectum, do they say yes? If I ask them, can you differentiate gas, liquid, solid, and they say yes, they have normal sensory function. Do they have normal sphincter function? Now I can tell this to a large extent from doing my sphincter exam. So I wanna know, I wanna ask myself, looking at my data, was this patient able to voluntarily contract the sphincter? Was the patient able to voluntarily relax the sphincter? On history, can they delay defecation at least briefly? 
and on exam did I pick up any areas where there were gaps in contractility? And finally, is there any evidence of impaired rectal capacity or compliance? That's the patient who can delay defecation very briefly, but not past one to two minutes. Most of the time, they're also gonna have a history of IBD or symptoms that are consistent with IBD, like cramping, blood in the stool, episodic episodes, that kind of thing. Okay, so you can take all the patients with fecal incontinence, and you can take their historical data and their physical exam data, and you can classify the type of incontinence. There's two ways to classify, and the first is looking at onset and duration. And it is helpful in directing treatment. Um, transient fecal incontinence is what you see in patients who have high volume diarrhea. So you think about the patients we have in the hospital with C. diff. A lot of those patients have fecal incontinence because they have high volume diarrhea, and most of them have limited mobility because they're in the hospital. But if you ask them, most of them were perfectly continent prior to hospitalization and prior to onset of this infectious diarrhea. So what are we going to focus on? We're gonna focus on treating the C. diff so that we eliminate the diarrhea. We can also focus on improving mobility. And then on a short-term basis, we're gonna look at what's the best way to contain the liquid stool and to protect their skin. Sometimes transient incontinence is caused by sudden alteration in mental status. So you have a patient who's acutely critically ill. Maybe they've been sedated or maybe they have short-term confusion so that they're not responding appropriately to the signals of rectal distension. So again, what are we gonna do? We're gonna focus on the underlying causes, get their cognitive function back to baseline in the meantime, we'll focus on containment and skin care, as we discussed in the class on diarrhea. What about episodic? So some patients will come in and they'll be like, I don't even know what to tell you. Most of the time I've got good control. So most of the time I know when I have to go, I can hold it till I get there. But then sometimes I know I have to go, but I can't get there. And last week, it was so embarrassing. I knew I had to go. I was with a group of people. We were out. I didn't even know where all the bathrooms were. I couldn't get there in time. And I pooped my pants. I don't ever even want to see those people again. I definitely want to go, don't want to go back to where I was. What is going on? Why is it that sometimes I'm okay and sometimes I'm not? And what can I do about it? You see this a lot in patients who have a damaged sphincter. Now this person has intact sensory awareness. They have some ability to contract the sphincter, but their sphincter is not 100%. What does that tell you? That tells you they're going to be continent as long as their stool is soft or formed. What about episodes of diarrhea? What's gonna happen when they have liquid stool? They're not gonna be able to retain the liquid stool. They cannot create enough resistance. 
You will also see episodic incontinence in patients who have severe inflammatory bowel disease. So those of you who have worked with patients with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, some of them will tell you that's the worst part of having IBD. Yes, the cramping is awful. Yes, the diarrhea is awful. Yes, I realize I just feel bad so many days. But you know what interferes the most with my lifestyle, with what I can do and where I go, is when I'm afraid I'm not going to make it. When I'm worried about having an incontinent episode. Then I'm constantly looking for bathrooms. I'm like, no, I can't go there. No, I don't want to go out to eat. No, I don't want to take a trip because I want to be safe. So patients with IBD, patients with IBS that's diarrhea predominant, may experience incontinent episodes during flare-ups. And why? Because they have large volume liquid stool dumped into their rectum. Rectal pressures are so high that the anal canal can provide sufficient resistance only for a very short period of time. So here we're going to focus on managing the underlying condition. Some people will benefit from um, sphincter strengthening exercises. If I have damage to my sphincter, I can strengthen all of the functional elements of my sphincter and improve my ability to withstand a full rectum and we'll use containment if necessary. So it is helpful to talk to patients while we lay out a complete program, we're like, these are the things we're gonna do. You can sometimes provide short-term counseling that's of benefit. Till we get you where you need to go, take a change of clothing, know where the bathrooms are, wear dark clothing, think about taking oral agents that deodorize the stool. You can have chronic incontinence due to altered mental status. And this is almost always your patients with dementia. So they don't recognize and respond appropriately to rectal distension. Anytime the rectum gets full, they're going to have an incontinent episode. So you have two options here. You can put these patients in containment garments or you can put them on a program where you stimulate stool evacuation on a routine basis. For most patients, we end up putting them in containment garments because stimulated defecation is very stressful if you don't understand what's going on. There's a significant number of individuals who have chronic fecal incontinence because they've lost sensory motor function. These are your cord injured patients, your spina bifida patients, your MS patients, your patients who are wheelchair bound, scooter bound. So because of their spinal cord injury or their spina bifida or their MS, they do not recognize rectal distension or if they do, it's not in a timely manner. They cannot adequately control their external sphincter, so they're unable to close the anal canal and retain stool in the rectum. If they have a low-level injury, like a sacral spinal cord injury, they can get profound constipation because those injuries cause loss of normal innervation to the bowel. What can we do for a patient who's young, wheelchair-bound, scooter-bound, 
they're working, they want to be able to go out with their friends, they need bowel control. We start by normalizing stool consistency so that their compromised sphincter function has a better chance of retaining the stool. And it's absolutely critical to put them on a program where we stimulate stool evacuation on a routine basis so that they regain control of fecal elimination. We'll talk more about that. So you can classify incontinence based on onset and duration. The other way is to base it on patterns of leakage. So passive incontinence is you don't even know it's happened until you smell that there's stool. Um, one of my friends had an acute episode. She said she was at the airport and she was in the lounge. And all of a sudden she smells stool and she thinks, oh my goodness, who's had, who's had an incontinent episode? She happened to be a continence nurse and she's looking around. She's like, I'm the only one here. Is it me? So she goes to the bathroom. She's like, oh my gosh, why would I be leaking stool? So of course, as soon as she got back, she had a workup done um, and she found, yes, she had an unrecognized, undiagnosed neurologic process so that she could recognize significant rectal distension, but not small amounts. And she had sphincter function, but it wasn't totally normal. So passive incontinence means you do not sense rectal distension. You do not know that stool is moving through the anal canal until it's already happened. And this is due either to a neurologic injury like spinal cord injury or MS or to dementia. Now, urge incontinence is the opposite. You know you have intense fecal urgency. You're trying to get to the bathroom, but you're unable to delay defecation until you get there. It could be because you have a damaged or weak external sphincter. It could be because you have high volume diarrhea and it would overwhelm anyone's continence mechanism. It could be because you have underlying inflammatory bowel disease and your rectum has very little ability to stretch and store. As we've said several times, if it's a sphincter issue, leakage is immediate. If it's loss of rectal compliance, you can hold it for one to two minutes, but not past that point. If it's due to high volume liquid stool, people can tell you that. They're like, I knew I had to go. I was hanging on, hanging on, hanging on, but the diarrhea was too bad. I couldn't hold it. And we always say every sphincter has its limit. The last two types, seepage and soiling, not very common. These are people who have some damage to the internal anal sphincter. So when small amounts of stool enter the rectum and they're not aware of it, it's that very low volume, so it's kind of flying under the radar or seeping under the radar. They don't recognize it, so they don't tighten the external sphincter. And because the internal sphincter is damaged, it doesn't maintain perfect closure of the anal canal, and it allows small amounts to leak out. That is not common at all. So don't spend much time on that. Flatus incontinence is people who sometimes say, I don't always know when I'm gonna pass gas and I can't always hold it. I, can, I always know when there's stool and I can hold that, but I don't always know when I have gas. 
Some people include this in their discussion of fecal incontinence, others exclude this, but patients find it very concerning. Okay, so what are our goals? And remember this goes back to data synthesis and it also goes back to what can go wrong. So is it an issue with stool consistency? Usually that means there's an underlying issue with peristaltic function. If you do not have soft form stool, I am gonna start there always because if you have limited sensory awareness, if you have any compromise in sphincter function, soft form stool is going to be retained more easily. It's not going to overwhelm the sphincter mechanism. If you have issues with sensory awareness, yes, I know, but I don't always know in time. Or I always know if I have a large amount of form stool. I don't always know if I have a little bit of liquid stool. Then I need to improve sensory awareness for this individual. As long as they have intact nerve pathways, there are some pretty simple things we can do. If they have some degree of sphincter damage, so maybe my anal rectal exam showed that there was an area of the sphincter that had been damaged and replaced with collagen. Maybe the patient says, I can sometimes hold it in. If it's soft and formed, I can hold it in. If it's liquid, I can't. We need to strengthen the sphincter. If they say, I can hold it in, but only for one to two minutes, and then if I'm not in the bathroom, that's it, then I need to see what's going on with the rectal walls, if there's an issue with rectal capacity and compliance. What if I have a patient who has irritable bowel syndrome, and they're like, I know when I have to go, sometimes I can get there, sometimes I can't, but I tell you, I think part of the issue now is that I panic because ever since I had that accident a few months ago, whenever I have a flare-up of my irritable bowel syndrome, I'm so freaked out, I'm so afraid that I'm gonna have an accident that I'm just blindly running looking for a bathroom. I think that's part of the problem. I need to learn how to control it and control my response. Okay, that patient can benefit from learning control strategies. If I have a patient with total loss of sensory awareness, total loss of sphincter control, my spina bifida, my spinal cord injured, my MS patient, I've got to go with stimulated defecation. So we're gonna quickly go through some of these things because we've talked about them in more detail in previous classes. So your goal, three or four, ideally four, on the Bristol stool chart. If they are constipated, I'm gonna do a clean out and then I'm gonna use fibrin fluid to normalize stool consistency. Always with that aim. And so we show our patients this Bristol stool chart and we say, you're right here. Here's where you need to be. Here's how we're gonna help you get there. If we can help you get there, is going to improve bowel function as a whole and it's going to tremendously improve your ability to hang on to stool and not leak. So in my spina bifida clinic, the kids called this perfect poop. Number four, perfect poop. If the patient has diarrhea, we're going to begin with correcting any known etiologic factors. 
If it's C. diff, we're going to treat C. diff. If it's malabsorption, we're going to omit those foods. And we're going to use dietary modifications and, medic um, dietary modifications and medications to get them back to number four. What if I have a patient who's like, most of the time I know I don't always know, so sometimes I have little bits of leakage because I didn't even realize anything was there. So you can do a very simple biofeedback program where you enhance sensory awareness. And what you do is you take a balloon-tipped catheter, you insert it into the rectum, you gradually inflate the balloon until the patient senses distension. Now remember, with normal sensory function, as little as 10 milliliters of inflation would trigger sensory awareness. But most individuals who have diminished sensory awareness, you're up to 30, maybe 40, before they say, oh, I feel that. You're like, okay, focus on that feeling. Now I'm going to very gradually deflate it. Tell me at what point you lose it. And you do that repetitively. And what you're doing is training them to recognize lower levels of rectal distension. You can use it in reverse if you have somebody with abnormal sensitivity where you gradually increase inflation and help them to overcome urgency. So if you have somebody who's like, you know, I think I've gotten into this really negative pattern where I'm just so afraid I'm gonna have a leakage episode that I panic with just little bits. So you're like, okay, well, we can help you overcome that. So we put the balloon-tipped catheter in the rectum and we start inflating it and we say, tell me when you first feel it and you feel that urgency, okay? I'm gonna hold it there. I want you to focus on deep breathing until that urgency subsides. Just breathe through it. Okay, you okay? Now I'm gonna put a little bit more in. You feel that intense urgency? Breathe through it. So you're teaching them to use deep breathing to override that intense urgency and to give them back control. Most of your patients, once you get past issues with diarrhea and constipation, so once you fix that, most of your patients are going to fall into the category of having weak sphincter muscles or having neurologic issues. If the issue is a weak or damaged sphincter, and let's say this patient tells me, ever since my last baby, that was nine months ago, ever since then, anytime I have liquid stool, I'm probably going to leak. I'm gonna teach her some things, but I'm also gonna send her for surgical workup to see if a repair is indicated. But what else can I do for her or for any patient with a weak sphincter muscle? If they're cognitively intact, if their pelvic floor is normally innervated, and if they're motivated, I'm gonna teach some sphincter exercises, which are basically the same things that we do for people who have overactive bladder and urge urinary incontinence. So what am I gonna tell them to do? Okay, you're gonna do probably 10 repetitions at a time, so I want you to contract your anal sphincter as tightly as you can. So think, hang on to that gas, hang on to that stool. So contract, contract, contract. 
I want you to hold it for as long as possible and I want you to time it. When you can't hold it any longer, relax for 10 seconds. Then repeat, contract as hard as you can, hold as long as you can, relax for 10 seconds. And then you usually want them to do 10 to 15 repetitions and a total of 30 to 45 a day. Amazingly effective, and even in patients who have some degree of sphincter damage, these exercises strengthen the functional muscle and help that functional muscle to compensate for the area of the sphincter that is damaged. So as long as they have the ability to voluntarily contract, even if it's weak, as long as they're cognitively intact and motivated, they can benefit from these muscles exercises. Enhancing the ability to delay, this is just putting the patient back in control. You can imagine that if you've had one incontinent episode and you sense urgency, you sense stool in your rectum, that you can go into panic mode where you're just frantically looking for a bathroom. You're not focused on controlling your sphincter muscle or on strategies to interrupt peristaltic activity. You're just trying to find a bathroom and you're very likely to leak on the way. So what you want to do is you want to teach them about normal bowel function. And you want to teach them the normal sequence of events. So you can tell them, okay, here's what happens. When stool enters your rectum, you get this strong urge to go that makes you feel like you've got to go right then. But if you can deep breathe and tighten your sphincter, deep breathe, tighten your sphincter, you're going to interrupt that forward push, going to interrupt that peristaltic wave. Then the rectum is going to relax around that stool and it's going to buy you time. So instead of responding to that intense urgency by trying frantically to get to a bathroom, you want to control it. You want to tighten your sphincter, close the door, deep breathe. Those two strategies interrupt that peristaltic wave, interrupt that forward push, and ultimately interrupt urgency. So education really critical, teaching them freeze, squeeze, breathe. You remember freeze, squeeze, breathe from when we were talking about overactive bladder and urgent continence. Exactly the same thing. How does it work? Standing in place allows you to focus on sphincter control and deep breathing and also interrupts that additional abdominal pressure because if you're running trying to get to a bathroom, what's happening to your abdominal pressure? It's going up. That's increasing rectal pressure. That's increasing your risk of leakage. Stand still. Even better, sit down so that you've got additional mechanical pressure against the anal canal. So stand still or sit down. Contract your anal sphincter muscles so that you're closing the door. When you forcefully contract the anal sphincter, remember it interrupts that downward push, that forward momentum, that mass movement. And focus on deep breathing, which has a physiologic quieting effect and has been shown to interrupt peristalsis.
What about those patients who are wheelchair bound, scooter bound, or maybe they have a very low level sacral cord lesion, so maybe they're ambulatory, but they have no bowel and bladder function. What can you do for them? So there's a pretty simple program known as stimulated defecation that's very effective for many of these patients. We use it primarily for people who have intact cognition, but loss of sensory awareness and loss of sphincter function. It could be used for patients with dementia, but it's likely to be stressful. So your whole goal is to stimulate defecation on a routine basis before the rectum fills enough to cause involuntary emptying, involuntary defecation. So here are your basic principles. You have a patient who cannot sense rectal distension, cannot contract the anal sphincter, so is unable to delay defecation. Your goal is to stimulate those mass movements and to stimulate rectal evacuation on a routine basis at the patient's time of choice so that you put them back in control of stool elimination. It's not enough to tell them attempt to go on schedule. It's not enough just to say transfer to the toilet at the same time every day, after breakfast every other day, and try to eliminate stool. Because if there is no stool in the rectum, as one of my patients said, I can push and push and push, but nothing happens. So what we have to do is on a scheduled basis, on a routine basis, we have to stimulate peristaltic activity. Do something to push stool into the rectum, then the patient can push it out. Now fortunately, stimulating defecation on a routine basis not only empties the colon, and reduces the risk of incontinence, but over time, repeated use of the same stimulus on the same schedule creates some degree of bowel dependency that supports continence. We don't have a lot of data, most of it's anecdotal, but that's what the data suggests. So, I have this patient, yes, they'll do anything to obtain bowel control so that they can go to school, so that they can go to work. What do I need to do? First of all, I have to start out with a clean slate, so I've got to disimpact if there's retained stool in the rectum. I've got to do a colonic clean out, and I've got to do that fiber and fluid to establish soft form stool. And one thing I will say about this that I tell my patients, if you have no sphincter control, and these are patients who have no sphincter control, and I'm looking at the Bristol stool chart, I definitely want them between four and three. I don't want them to err on the soft side, so I don't want them moving toward number five. If they're gonna err at all, I want them to err on the formed firm side, because remember that sphincter is not normally innervated. They can't tighten it, but it is maintaining passive closure, and passive closure is gonna be much more effective if the stool is formed. So you never want them at level five. You want them somewhere between three and four. 
Now you're going to set up the schedule. Um, the schedule should be about the same time every day or every other day. It should always be after a meal because eating stimulates peristalsis. Most of our cord injured patients um, do their bowel program every other day, but some find that if they try to go for two days, do it every other day, they have leakage in between. So on those patients, we back them up to daily. And then we have to select a stimulus that is gonna trigger mass movements and move stool out of the transverse colon into the rectum. Now, the option most commonly used in rehab centers is digital stimulation. <clears throat> and what you do is you put on a finger cot and you insert a glove finger two to three centimeters into the anal canal um, till you reach the anal rectal junction and then you rotate your finger in a circular fashion. And what that does is it stimulates nerve endings in the anal canal and the anal rectal junction. It causes reflex relaxation of the internal sphincter and causes peristalsis in the left colon. Problem is, it usually takes about 10 to 20 minutes of stimulation, and that's a long time to do this. It can be used in conjunction with suppositories, which can speed up the whole process. Also remember that most of these individuals are in wheelchairs or on scooters, so they don't have the same degree of mobility and dexterity. So for people who have diminished mobility and dexterity, there's actually something called a dill stick that's like a finger on a stick, and they can wrap it around their wrist to help with digital stimulation. So what are the advantages of this approach? Well, it's very safe, it's very physiologic, and it's inexpensive because your fingers are reusable and finger cots don't cost much. But there are some disadvantages. First of all, it may not work in a patient with sacral cord injury because there's denervation. And so you're trying to activate nerve pathways that are no longer intact. So you just have to be aware that if you have a child with a sacral level spina bifida or an adult with sacral level spinal cord injury, you can try this, they can try this, but it may not work. And patient acceptance is sometimes a problem. Sometimes patients hate to do this. And if so, you wanna to move to something else. So the something else might be a suppository. Um, suppositories are very easy to use. There's a number of them out there, glycerin, bisacodyl, carbon dioxide. You do have to make sure, as you can see in the slide on the bottom, you have to make sure they position the suppository against the rectal wall so that it will melt and take effect. Because suppositories are inexpensive, because they're easy to use, because they typically have better patient acceptance, a lot of clinicians use suppositories as kind of their um, option of choice, their first option or um, good place to start. And then if you need to add digital stem, you can add that. Or at least you should talk to patients about digital stem versus suppositories. So the advantages, they're widely available. You can get them in any drugstore, any pharmacy. They're inexpensive, they're very easy to use, and they don't feel nearly as invasive as digital stem. 
But there are disadvantages. The number one disadvantage is there's a lot of variability in the time frame for response. And there's variability in the completeness of evacuation. So some people get great results and others do not. Now there's a third option. A lot of people don't know about this, but there are these um, products called mini enemas. And basically they're four milliliter gelatin ampules. They typically have a twist off tip, like you can see on the top, and an enema tip. And most of them contain docusate the softener and soft soap, which acts as a mild peristaltic irritant. So what you do, you have to position for access to the anus. You twist off the top. Usually the enema tip is pre-lubricated, but if not, you would lubricate it. Put it through the anal canal, and then you squeeze it very slowly because you don't want it to come right back out. You want it to stay in. You want the solution to stay in at least 10 to 15 minutes. It's going to attract fluid into the gut. It's going to that's going to stretch the colonic walls and cause peristalsis. Some patients tell me they can feel the peristaltic waves. So we want that solution to stay in for at least 10 to 15 minutes or until they sense peristaltic activity. If they tend, if the liquid tends to leak out on them because they have no ability to voluntarily contract the sphincter, you can tell them to just hold the buttocks together, to manually compress the buttocks to hold the solution in. Now, the advantages are these are like suppositories. They're easy to use. Um, they're widely available. You can get them online. You can get them in a pharmacy. There's pretty good acceptance from patients and caregivers. A lot of patients tell us that they get more complete evacuation with these mini enemas than they do with suppositories. You can use this in conjunction with digital stem. So really the only disadvantage is that they're more expensive than suppositories and than digital stem. So usually two to three dollars each, which might not sound that bad until you start looking at it on a monthly basis. So if you were doing this every other day, maybe not so bad, so about $30 a month. But if you were doing it every day, it would be $60 to $90 a month, and that's a lot. What other options could you use? What if you've tried digital stem but it didn't work? Suppositories, incomplete evacuation, same thing with the little mini enemas. And you realize that probably that's because this patient has a sacral level lesion. And we know that those patients have profound denervation of the rectum and the colonic walls. So they are going to require significant colonic distension to get peristaltic activity initiated. These patients might need a tap water enema because with a tap water enema, you definitely get more distension of the colon walls. You don't get that level of distension with a mini enema because it just pulls in a little bit of fluid. You don't get any colonic distension with a suppository or with digital stem. So if they fail to respond to dig stem, 
suppositories or mini enemas, then you're like, well, we're going to have to go to mechanical distension. We're going to have to do a tap water enema that will stretch the bowel and empty the bowel. The problem is you've all given enemas, but we rely on the sphincter mechanism to hold the fluid in. So we give the enema and we tell the patient, hold it, tighten your sphincter, hold it in for this period of time. But by definition, patients who need a stimulated defecation program don't have that sphincter function. They can't hold it in. So what you need to do is you need to take a balloon tip catheter, like a Foley catheter, attach it to the enema tubing, feed the catheter into the rectum, inflate the balloon. That's going to help to retain the solution. Gently tug on the catheter so that the balloon seats at the anorectal junction. Then administer the enema to distend the bowel wall. Then allow the patient to transfer to the toilet or the bedpan, deflate the balloon, remove the catheter. Now, usually you don't want to get into something like this because it's a lot more steps. It's obviously a more complicated bowel program but it might be the most effective option for a patient who has a sacral cord lesion because those patients are dependent on the enteric nervous system for peristalsis and that's going to respond to distension. Disadvantages are easy to see. More complex, more time consuming than anything else we've talked about. Now you should know that there's a new commercial system available that's really targeting people with spinal cord injuries or MS affecting the cord. And this is a transanal irrigation system. There's only one out there at this point. It's Peristine by Coloplast. And I hope you can see here that there's a rectal balloon, there's a water reservoir, and then there's a handheld unit that allows the individual to inflate the balloon and to actively control water installation. So the water doesn't just go in by gravity, it's being pumped in under low pressure. That pump allows you to propel the water more proximally, so it stretches the left side of the colon and possibly the transverse colon and activates peristalsis. The time frame with this system for evacuation is usually 20 to 30 minutes. That's pretty good for a patient with a spinal cord injury who's doing a bowel program if they can be done within 20 to 30 minutes, especially if they're able to do it every other day. It's more costly, it does take more time. The issue is, does this patient need this? So have they failed other stimuli? You definitely want to talk to them about this. We've briefly mentioned before that if you know when you have to go, you can hold it briefly, but not for long. It's going to go back to some issue with rectal capacity and compliance. This is always about treating the underlying condition, the inflammatory bowel disease, the irritable bowel syndrome. Now, you also want to combine this with strategies to help them now, like any environmental modifications to facilitate toileting. You know, like you're going to tell them you want to know where the toilets are. You want to have clothing that's easy to pull up and down. You don't want to be 
you know, doing zippers and buttons and snaps. They probably need to wear absorbent products during flare-ups so that they're not in a panic. And they may find that there are dietary modifications and medications that also help with symptom control and with stool consistency. If you have a patient who has severe refractory inflammation or fibrosis of the rectum, like due to radiation therapy or whatever, they might require either temporary or long-term fecal diversion. Now, environmental modifications, we've talked about this a lot in the sections on urinary incontinence, so you already know what they are, bedside commode, things to make you more mobile, clothing modifications. What about absorbent products? Your briefs are usually going to be your best option if you're containing stool or a combination of stool and urine. You're definitely going to want to spend time talking to them about skin care because you do not want them to develop incontinence-associated dermatitis. And you should know and you should tell your patients if one of your big concerns is odor because you're so afraid you'll have an episode when you're around other people, and even if it's contained by the absorbent product, the odor won't be controlled, you should know about bismuth subgallate. So that is an agent you can take by mouth that significantly reduces fecal odor. And it's available over the counter. You can get it from Amazon, so they should know about that little things. They might sound little to us, but if you're worried that you're going to have a fecal accident, how important would containment be and how important would odor control be? Essential. What about surgical options? Is there anything that can be done surgically to improve function if I have persistent problems with fecal incontinence? This is the rest of my life. Well, sometimes if you have a patient who has sustained obstetric trauma and damage to the external sphincter, sometimes they can literally overlap so that you've got um, functional sphincter contacting functional sphincter. So an overlapping plication sphincter repair can be helpful for those patients. Um, the problem is continence tends to deteriorate over time, so very important to teach them pelvic muscle exercises as well. The anti-grade continence cinema, we've mentioned this a couple of times before, can make a big difference for people with neurologic lesions causing fecal incontinence. So this is where you create a continence stoma that enters the colon, typically along the ascending colon and allows you to give yourself a flush. Instead of giving yourself an enema, which goes from bottom up, you're literally flushing stool through the colon and out. So the water or the cleansing solution is going into the proximal colon, flushing through and taking stool with it. So typically they're going to irrigate every other day and it usually takes them about 30 minutes to an hour. But for a lot of children and for a lot of adults, this restores fecal continence. They started this with um, kids with neurogenic bowel and got such good results that it's crossed over to the adult population. One difference in kids and in adults. In 
adults, they typically create a skin level stoma so that you actually pass the catheter through the skin level stoma because adults typically have a thicker abdominal wall. In children, they can do a very minor procedure where they insert a tube into the right side of the colon and then you can open the tube and insert the irrigation catheter and flush the bowel. So in children, they will sometimes talk about this chait trapdoor cecostomy. That's what they're talking about. Well, could they do an artificial sphincter if the existing sphincter is not working? It's a great idea, and they have done this, where they place a cuff around the anorectal junction. You can see that on top. They have the reservoir in um, the abdominal cavity, and then you have a control pump that's usually in the scrotum for men and in the labia for women. As long as the cuff is inflated, the anal canal is closed. When you deflate the cuff, you open the anal canal and permit stool elimination. Alternatively, they've done this very interesting procedure where they inject magnetic beads along the sphincter walls. And because they're magnetic, they attract each other, and so that tends to maintain anal canal closure. When you bear down, the higher rectal pressure is enough to override that magnetic pull, so it opens the anal canal and allows stool to pass through, and it sounds perfect. But unfortunately, neither one of those are perfect. Um, they're, neither one are commonly done because there's been high uh, incidence of complications and reoperation. So research is ongoing. We don't have a lot to offer in the way of surgery. They have also tried the injectable bulking agents. You heard about this when we talked about urinary incontinence. Could they inject some kind of bulking agent into the walls of the anal canal to narrow the lumen and increase resistance? Well, they've hypothesized that that might be a benefit to patients who have that seepage and soiling pattern due to a very weak or damaged internal sphincter. So far, it's not widely used. It hasn't been all that effective. Sacral nerve stimulation, we've talked about this a couple of times. We've talked about it in urinary incontinence. We've talked about it for refractory constipation. Now, we know that effective bladder function and effective bowel function incontinence are dependent on normal innervation, and we know that a lot of the pathways that control bowel function and bladder function exit the cord between S2 and S4. So the pudendal nerve that gives you voluntary sphincter control, the parasympathetic pathways that control bladder contraction and contribute to bowel motility. So there's some data that says that if we implant wires adjacent to the sacral nerves, that then we can use stimulation of those wires to activate those sacral nerves and to normalize bowel and bladder function. And within patients who undergo that procedure for fecal incontinence, the success rates have been as high as 89%. But you have to remember, before everybody thinks their patient should have that, that these are relatively small studies. We haven't done broad-scale studies yet, so we need a lot more data before we start routinely recommending this.
One thing that can be done for a patient with refractory fecal incontinence is a fecal diversion, a colostomy. So typically this is considered last resort, but put yourself in this patient's shoes or seat, because remember most of these people are wheelchair or scooter bound. What would you rather deal with? Unpredictable, refractory fecal incontinence so that you never know when you leave your home if you're going to have an accident? Or would you rather deal with a colostomy where you wear a pouch or do routine irrigation to control stool elimination? We're very good at managing colostomies. We can put people in odor-proof systems. We can teach them how to manage those systems. Sometimes we can teach them how to flush the colostomy on a routine basis so that they can control stool elimination. So if we have a patient who has loss of sensory function, loss of sphincter control, they have failed other management approaches, we should always talk to them about fecal diversion. It can be the best option. Quality of life studies have been done among veterans who are spinal cord injured and who have failed stimulated defecation programs, and they consistently report much higher quality of life. I myself have had spinal cord injured patients who asked me to talk to their surgeons and help them convince their surgeons that this would be better for them. I talked to a woman just two weeks ago who was in the hospital for pressure injury management and she had recently undergone fecal diversion after many years of managing with a bowel program. She said she didn't want that fecal diversion, she didn't want that colostomy, but she had to say it had made things so much easier for her, so much better for her, with marked improvement in her quality of life. In our last few minutes, we're gonna talk about a unique type of fecal incontinence that is seen in children. It's known as incapresis. It's fecal soiling that is usually associated with functional constipation. By definition, functional constipation is constipation not caused by any organic or anatomic pathology. Primary incapresis in children is fecal incontinence in a child who has never acquired bowel control. And remember, most kids acquire bowel control by age four, if not sooner. Secondary incapresis, it goes back to what you've already learned about primary and secondary enuresis. Secondary incapresis, this is a child who did acquire bowel control. They were continent for at least a year, maybe longer, they subsequently developed incapresis, became incontinent again. And many times there is an emotional component to that. So they divide incapresis into primary versus secondary and also into retentive and non-retentive. So retentive incapresis is soiling that's associated with chronic constipation, with stool retention, is by far the most common. Non-retentive is soiling in a child with no stool retention. It's usually due to some type of bowel pathology. So 
We've already said non-retentive is much less common, usually caused by organic disorders, sometimes by emotional stressors. That's not what we're gonna focus on. We're gonna focus on the much more common type of retentive in caprices. <clears throat> this is not an anatomic disorder. There's no pathology inherent in the bowel wall. It is almost always triggered by some kind of psychosocial, psychological issue, either very coercive or sometimes extremely permissive toilet training, um, sometimes toileting fears. Kids have a lot of fears around toilet training, stool elimination. You'll hear kids ask you after you flush the toilet, where did it go, what happened to it? Because they perceive that as part of them and now it's gone. Uh, for a number of kids, retentive incapricis begins with a painful or episode of constipation where, where stool elimination hurt them or was very difficult. And now, subconsciously, they hold on to the stool because they don't want to go through that again. Sometimes it's social taboos and lack of privacy. So in some children, they were doing fine until they went to kindergarten. So they achieved continence, no issues as long as they were at home, but now they're in pre-K, they're in kindergarten, they're in school. And you know that there's practically no privacy in school bathrooms, and kids may not want to have a bowel movement in school bathrooms, so they might hang on to it until they get home, and then they don't have to go anymore. And so what tends to happen is first you get retained stool in the rectum and then the rectosigmoid and eventually the entire colon. So what you get is voluntary or subconscious and most of the time it's subconscious withholding of stool. Sometimes it's voluntary, but many times they're not aware they're doing this. So let's say that I had a very painful episode of constipation and when I finally passed the stool, it hurt. So now I'm subconsciously avoiding that pain and when I get the urge to go, instead of going to the bathroom, I tighten up on the sphincters. So what happens when I tighten up on my sphincters, I close the anal canal, I interrupt that forward push, the rectal walls relax, great. Now that intense urgency goes away. I go about my day, I don't go to the bathroom, I forget about it, I forget about it when I get home. Now it happens again. More stools delivered to the rectum. I get that intense urge to go. I don't want to go. I tighten up, interrupt that forward push, keep the door closed, rectal walls relax. So you see that over time, the rectum accommodates to large volumes of stool. Once the rectum accommodates to large volumes of stool, two things happen. First of all, the internal sphincter stays open all the time because once you have significant volumes of stool in the rectum, it keeps the door propped open. So now you have a pathway for leakage. The second thing that happens is once the rectal walls get stretched out, you lose that urge to go because whereas before, stool would get deposited into the rectum, that stool caused the rectal walls to stretch that stretch notified you that, had, that you had stool in your rectum and caused the urge to go. Now the rectal walls are all stretched out and there is no awareness. So you lose the urge to go, 
The rectum eventually becomes totally overfilled and stretched out. The internal sphincter is open. Now liquid stool can leak around the fecal mass and the child has soiling. So the underlying problem is the rectosigmoid, maybe the entire colon is full of stool, but the reported symptom is leakage, which some parents interpret as diarrhea because it's typically liquid. And as you can see, eventually, the child can develop megacolon. How does it present? Well, what's upsetting everyone are the stool accidents. So that's usually what they come in complaining of. Some kids have abdominal pain. Some kids report no abdominal pain. So that's not a consistent finding. Now, adults in this child's life are typically very upset with him or her because they're like, well, even if you can't control it, you have to know that you had an accident, so why don't you go to the bathroom and clean yourself up and put on clean clothes? But the reality is most of these kids are not aware that they've had an incontinent episode. Remember, the rectal walls are stretched out. They have no urge to go. They leak liquid stool around the fecal mass. So now they have liquid stool in the underwear, and there's fecal odor but they're not aware of it because we all become accustomed to our own bodily odors. So these kids are not aware most of the time that they've had an accident. Now, 25% of these kids will have bedwetting as well, probably because the overly full rectosigmoid compresses the bladder and limits bladder expansion. So you see the little kid on top. You see other kids making fun of this kid. You know that happens. You know how tough kids can be on other kids. And so if a kid doesn't meet societal norms, he or she is going to be isolated. If they smell bad, their peers are going to tell them. If they have obvious fecal soilage, their peers are going to make fun of them. So it's extremely stressful for the kid. Usually that child ends up being isolated. A lot of these kids don't even know how to talk about what's happening. They don't understand what's happening. Their parents are upset and the parents typically feel like, did we do something wrong? Is this our fault? Or what's wrong with this kid? Why is he, she acting out? So there's frequently tremendous stress reported. Stress between the kid and siblings, between the child and their parents, between the child and their peers. Okay, so what can we do for these kids and for their parents? Well, you're going to start with a history. You're going to do a med surge history. You're going to find out, is anything else going on? Do they have normal um, development or are there any developmental delays? Most importantly, when did this start? What was the onset of the incaprices? How long has it been going on? What impact has it had? How is the parent feeling? How is the parent managing this? Do they believe the child's acting out so they've been trying disciplinary approaches? What are they doing? What do the parents believe? From a physical perspective, you always do a screen to rule out neurologic lesions, but you just watch the child's gait. You can check the base of the spine because if there's any spinal cord abnormality, you frequently have an abnormal dimple or hair at the base of the spine. 
Most of the time that's negative. So then you're going to do your abdominal exam. You're going to progress along the length of the colon. Most of the time you find extensive retained stool, so dullness to percussion. You're going to check the perineal and perirectal areas for fecal soiling and skin breakdown. Usually you do not do a rectal exam until you have good rapport with the child because the child already has enough issues associated with stool elimination and pain in the anorectal area. You don't want to add to that. You can do a very simple flat plate of the abdomen, abdominal imaging, to determine the severity of stool retention. Here you see a colon completely filled with stool. If you're worried about um, slow transit constipation, you can do a transit study. That's usually not the issue. You can do defecography if you're worried about obstructed defecation. That's typically not the issue. So you usually are not into those high-level studies. It's usually a history a focused physical exam, possibly straightforward imaging. And then what do you do about it? You start with intensive education and counseling for both the parents and the child. Everybody in this situation typically is feeling bad. They're feeling guilty, they're feeling angry, so the parents are angry at the child, the child's angry at the parents, everybody's upset. So the first thing to say is, this happens and you are not the only one. You're not the only kid to have this issue. You're not the only family to be dealing with this. It's just not something people talk about, but it's a pretty common problem. So the good news is there's nothing wrong with your bowel. Your bowel can work normally. We just have to teach it how to work normally. And it's gonna take us a little while to do that. It's not an overnight fix, but this is fixable and you're gonna be okay, and it's nobody's fault. So once you get people all out of that blame game, then you focus on eliminating all of the retained stool. And there are different protocols. If you're in pediatrics and you're dealing with these kids, you want to look this up. There's a fleet enema, Dolcolax protocol, that was widely used for many years, but it's using enemas and suppositories that can be very stressful for a child who already has a lot of issues around stool elimination. So a protocol that's been very effective and has gained a lot of acceptance recently, well I say recently, over the last 10 to 20 years, is use of mineral oil orally. So you give the child 15 to 30 millimeters, milliliters of mineral oil per kilogram of body weight a day. And of course, you've got to mix it with juice and you give it at a time separate from meals and any other medications because it's going to interfere with absorption. But within days, the vast majority of children eliminate all retained stool with minimal cramping, minimal issues. So it's a very safe, very effective protocol. If you have a child who fails the mineral oil protocol or maybe fails both the mineral oil and the fleet in a Modulplex protocol, then we end up putting them in the hospital, putting down a nasogastric tube, which is tough, so you don't want to do this unless you have to, and then giving them polyethylene glycol via the nasogastric tube until they clean out. So you have to get rid of all the retained stool. 
and then you put them on a bowel program. And your goal is to establish regular elimination of soft form stool. There's three elements. You keep them on softeners and laxatives until you're back to normal bowel function. Remember, most of these kids have very stretched out rectums. Sometimes they've had megacolon, so the colon itself may be dilated and distended. It is going to take time for the rectum and the sigmoid and the colon to regain normal size, normal diameter, normal sensory function, normal contractility. So you keep these kids on softeners every day, laxatives either every day or anytime they fail to stool within 24 hours. And usually they're gonna need softeners and laxatives for three to six months. So you've gotta say to the parents, it's okay. We are not gonna have your child on laxatives long-term, but it's a really important component of the program right now. So I'm using softeners and laxatives to keep this stretched out dysfunctional bowel on track and empty. At the same time, I introduce adequate fiber and fluid because I want this child to start producing soft form stool. So your fiber goal is um, aging years plus five. So if you're seven, you would want 12 grams of fiber a day. Or sometimes they base it on body weight and they'll say 0.5 grams of fiber per kilogram of body weight per day. Remember, there's so many options in fiber now, so maybe you can get them on a high fiber cereal. Or maybe you can give them fiber gummies. Or maybe you can put them on one of the fiber powders that you stir into their juice or their milk or their water, and it's non-gelling and there's no taste. And then the third element is routine toileting. And that is teaching the child to sit on the toilet for 10 to 15 minutes after meals at least twice a day so that they get in the habit of doing that. In addition, we, we teach them to respond promptly to the urge to go. So it's a very straightforward program. Use softeners and laxatives to compensate till the bowel's working normally again. Use fiber and fluid to establish soft form stool. Use routine toileting to get the child in the habit of trying to eliminate stool after meals and teach them to respond promptly to the urge to go. I bet you thought you would never see this slide. Here's the summary slide. So your first step in management of any type of fecal incontinence is to determine what you're dealing with, what type of fecal incontinence. What are the causative factors? Always you have to correct and normalize stool consistency. If you have a patient who knows when they have to go, they're trying to hang on, but they're worried that they can't get there or sometimes they don't get there, you're gonna correct any contributing factors like an underlying inflammatory bowel disease issue. You're going to teach them sphincter exercises. You're gonna teach them delay strategies. If they have a weak sphincter, you're gonna teach sphincter exercises. You might have them worked up for surgical repair. If they have some sensory awareness, but there's a delay between rectal distension and their awareness, you can use biofeedback. 
For patients who have loss of sensory awareness, loss of sphincter function, these are your patients with neurologic issues, you're going to put them on a stimulated defecation program. You might also need to use absorbent products and odor control, diversions of last resort. And for kids within caprices, it's all about education, getting the bowel cleaned out, getting them adequate fiber and fluid, and toileting routinely. So you have survived the continence course. We're here for any questions you have. Thank you very much.